Hey everyone, Randy here, and today I have a special guest for all of you. My friend Stefan Kessing is here to pay us a visit. Stefan runs grapplearts.com. He's got a big YouTube channel that focuses on BJJ, another YouTube channel on self-defense. You've probably seen him around if you've if you've had any interest in Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu or martial arts over the past few years. Stefan's been doing this a long time, and I brought him here to discuss his background in Chinese martial arts, as well as his opinion on where the state of Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu is now, where it's going, and some technical questions on BJJ to help out beginners especially on what to start with and focus on when you begin your journey. Let's get started. Hello, sir. How are you today? Very well. Thank you so much for having me, Randy. It's a pleasure to, to meet each other again online. Yeah, yeah. It's been a, a little while, Stefan, but I've been following your stuff and good as always. And I appreciate you stopping by today. Oh, thank you so much. I had some things I wanted to cover in my podcast and I thought who better to ask than you because you got this long history and quite a large following for jujitsu online and self-defense. But uh, I know that you've been doing the jujitsu stuff, what, since early 2000s? No, earlier Oh, yeah. I, I guess I started doing jiu-jitsu. It depends how you count it. If you include judo as part of jiu-jitsu, which would be uh, Robert Drysdale's most recent argument, I've been doing it since I was 11 years old. Uh, yeah. Online, I've been running grapple arts since 2003. Started thinking yeah. about it, creating it in 2002, and then uh, went live with that in 2003. So it's been, a, it's been an interesting journey, and thank you for making me feel old. No, no. How old are you? Are you the same uh, age? 51. 51. Okay. Yeah. So you're a couple of years beyond me. <laughs> and you started, uh, did you start at 11 or did you start other martial arts before that? My first martial art was judo. Basically, okay. I, I, at age eight, so that was right at the peak of the ninja craze. <laughs> I, uh, That's how I, I got into it too. I, I decided I wanted to be a professional ninja, right? You're, you're thinking about yeah. things long term when you're that age. Yeah. And I thought, you know, after giving it some serious consideration, professional ninja was definitely the way to go. I guess I'm still wearing black, so some things never die. So, I'll, you know, I've got a, a hat, but not the full mask. I was, I thought you were going to put the mask on for me for a minute. I was like, oh, this is getting interesting. <laughs> uh, but sadly, um, my parents, especially my mother, were kind of opposed to uh, me learning how to kill people with swords. There were also were no ninja academies that I could find. Uh, and it took uh, even three years of lobbying to get into judo. So judo uh, was the best I could do. I threatened to go on strike. And eventually I, I got uh, got my first judo classes. I did that for a number of years. Then I went, I finally was old enough to make a decision. And the next best thing to ninjutsu was Bruce Lee. Everybody uh, was a Bruce Lee uh, fan back in the day. And so I started Kung Fu and I did, I'd say five years of pretty intense training. If, if your listeners and viewers are interested, it's mostly Hungar, some Northern okay. Shaolin, a little bit of uh, Southern White Crane, and then smatterings of other stuff. You know, I, I dabbled in a bit of Xing Yi and, uh, and that, was a, that was the beginning of the martial arts journey. So Judo off into the striking arts and then a, a long 
gradual return to mostly grappling. I still think the other ranges and the other martial arts are incredibly important. I'm yeah. sure we'll be talking about that. Yeah. But, uh, you know, it, it was a, it was a re returning home, I think. It was a, in a certain sense. That's, I do have a couple more questions on your uh, your journey there, but it's it's funny because when we talked the last time, I learned that you even had done Chinese martial arts. Mm. I had no idea. And then this time, I learned that uh, <clears throat> right off the bat, we have almost an identical uh, story of our childhood with uh, the ninjutsu because that was how I was introduced. I used to have the magazines and circle all the stuff I wanted to order, take them to my mother and <laughs> – get smacked down. No, you're not having <laughs> sharp stars that you throw at your sister. I'm sure you and, made your own though. Yep. Uh, yeah. Yep. Yep. That was a rite uh, of passage. Sounds What's like you're familiar with that. <laughs> Can lids. I'll, I'll take a set of tin snips and I'll take a sheet of metal. And I'll try cutting my own throwing stars out. Of course. Yeah. Yep. And they were super, uh, cut myself a few times on those, but, um, a knife is not truly yours until you have cut yourself with it at least once. <laughs> I imply, I'm assuming the same thing applies to throwing stars. That's a good way to look at it. I like that. The uh, it, It's funny because the, the actual first in martial art that I could get my hands on was also judo, hmm. but uh, it didn't work out. I went to what my friend tried to get me to go. It was a small town. The guy was teaching out of his living room, and I went once and got a bad hmm. vibe from the from the instructor and it's like, nah, I'm all set. Yeah. I'll just uh, skip that for now. It's so important, your first martial art instructor. My first martial arts instructor was Frank Hatashita. So even now, 40 years later, I remember his name. Yeah. He was basically the, the man who led judo in Canada for, I'll say, decades. There are hmm. tons of people who trace his lineage, their lineage back to him. He, he ran Judo Canada. He was incredibly influential and important, but I still remember having some nice conversations with him and him making me feel welcome at his dojo. And I remember like the walking up the stairs to this little dojo, well, medium-sized dojo on Queen Street and just hearing the, the thud of bodies as they're doing break falling and smelling that, that martial arts school smell, really, yeah. the, the, the sweat. And the disinfectant, <laughs> yes, <laughs> and uh, and the heavy breathing. So that right. that uh, is a very formative memory. But you know, if that guy had been a jerk, if that guy had been an idiot, if I'd gotten creepy vibes, it might have changed a yeah. whole trajectory. It's amazing how important those those people are. They really become, you know, decision points in one's life. I suppose it's true of anything, right? You yeah. you meet one, uh, I don't know, financial planner. And you're like, okay, that's it. I'm never going to go see a financial planner or I'm never going to become a financial planner. I'm not going to do anything financial. I'm going to go into arts. And and there you've, yeah. you've bifurcated your life just based on one random encounter. That's so true. It's, it's that first impression really matters on how much somebody really wants to stick with something or how inspired they are down the, mm -hmm. down the line. So why did you switch from judo to uh, Chinese martial arts? Because I wanted to learn how to really fight. Oh. Yeah. And at that, at that point, uh, Kung Fu had a pretty good marketing campaign going, right? He yeah. had Bruce Lee. He had stories about Bruce Lee. And, and those are two different things, right? There was Bruce Lee in the movies. Then yeah. there was Bruce Lee in his books. Then there were 
this entire mythology around Bruce Lee. Uh, I mean, he didn't really have that many documented fights when you look at it, right? There was the, the fight against the other Kung Fu guy, and there was a brief skirmish on the set of a movie. And I'm sure there were a couple more, but, yeah. but that's not what you ended up believing when you were following this thing, right? He was just this, yeah. and then, then you get to the other thing, he was too deadly to fight. You know, the, that that right, was also right. floating yeah. around in there. Boy, that um, still goes around today. <laughs> yeah, uh, well, thank you to the Bushido uh, accounts. Yeah, for, yeah, uh, On Instagram and Twitter and everywhere else is busy, essentially exposing this internal martial arts stuff, but he's still finding, I'm sorry? And Xu Xiaodong, the MMA fighter that's been yeah. challenging them, but yeah, um, I mean it's it's not ultimately about the style. I mean the style is important, and the techniques of the style are important. It's the training method of the style. It's yeah. how do you take whatever the technique is and make it functional. How do you train it against somebody who doesn't want you to do that to them, right? In boxing, if you and I are just straight up boxing. I don't want you to put that jab in my face. Right. And I'm going to try to put my jab in your face. Thus, we both get really good at the jab. In jiu-jitsu, I really don't want you to take my back and choke me out. But I'm very eager to do the same to you. So we right. learn how to apply it against each other. I'm not letting you do it. I mean, at first, of course, we're doing it in repetitive, essentially two-person kata form. Right? I'm going to put my arm here. You're going to, I don't know, bridge your hips, shove my arm across your body, take my back, get the over-under grip. I'll roll because that's pre-programmed into our little kata. And then you're going to trap one of my arms with your legs and you're going to sink the choke. That, that would be a typical sequence that's worked thousands of times in jiu-jitsu competition. But if we just rep that without ever putting any oomph behind it, without putting increasing amounts of resistance. So like, screw you, I'm not gonna let you take my back or screw you, I'm gonna give you the responses that I've learned are pretty typical here. I'm gonna like try and crush you with my weight. I'm gonna try to grab your arm. I'm gonna try to wriggle out of this back. I'm gonna try and bury my chin. Yeah, it's full uh, resistance and, and that yeah. pressure creates diamonds really. Exactly, yeah, it, it, no pressure, no diamonds. Now, when you, so you spent, you said five years doing Chinese martial arts and then, so I imagine you got discouraged in that process because you left after five years. Yeah. I, I, to be fair, I did come back to it occasionally. I did after that, you know, in, in the next 10 to 15 year period, I did occasionally train things like Wing Chun fairly seriously. And, uh, like I said, Xing Yi that came after, uh, I think there were a couple of things that drove me away. Number one was the, the uh, super strict master and instructor hierarchy. Yeah. The thing that the, we'll get right to the, uh, the, the thing that made me say, screw this. I was going to university. So I, I, I'd been training my heart out. Right? I've been putting time and sweat and money and supporting the club. And all of a sudden the instructor needed to move. I'll drop everything. I'll help you move. Uh, we need to renovate the club. Okay, I'll drop everything. I'll go grab a sledgehammer. I'll carry drywall. I put a lot of time and energy into that club. Okay, cool. Yeah. Then I went away to university in a different city. And when I came back, 
uh, nine months later, you know, having completed a couple of semesters, you know, for summer break, I went and I was like, hey, I'm ready to train again. They're like, oh, cool. Here, here's a sheet of paper. Uh, fill out your application. I'm like, really? Yeah, yeah, fill out your application. We'll get back to you. Wow. And, it, and I was like, I did fill out the application. <clears throat> and I did eventually get accepted. I waited a week. But I was like, screw this. Like, I have put, you know, so much energy into here. And now you're going to pretend to have this, like, um, uh, application process. And also the idea that, you know, you weren't, if I showed you the next three moves with the tiger crane, if I learned the tiger crane form, just to pick up popular uh, form right. in Hungar, yep. Yep. and you were learning the tiger crane form, and you were up to move, I don't know, 30. I couldn't show you move 31, 32, 33. That had to come from the instructor. And this idea of not working together and kind of compartmentalizing knowledge and like, you're not allowed to show this to anybody outside the club. You're not even allowed to show this stuff to material, this material to people in the club. Really, <laughs> when you think about it, it's pretty cult-like. It's pretty cult-like in the sense that if you join, I don't know, if you traveled with, uh, Jim Jones, you probably weren't supposed to be going to other churches as well as the People's Temple. Yeah. If you're a Heaven's Gate cult member, you probably weren't supposed to be hanging out with family members outside that group. And it was it was very cultish, and I really began to chafe on me after a while. And so I I don't know to what extent that's traditional Chinese, a ch traditional Chinese approach to martial arts. This whole like stand in a horse stance outside the temple for a year myth. No, I don't it's I, I think that stuff showed up after the the collapse of the Qing and when it went into the Republican era and as people got further away from the application and the fighting, well, I've got these students and they're here for X period of time and either the instructor doesn't know how to fight so they can't teach anything or they're a horrible teacher so they can't teach the fighting skills they do have or they're just trying to drag it out and spend more and more time. I mean, I started that way as well. Stand in a horse stance for the first two, the early classes were the first two minutes. I think my first belt test sash test was, uh, I had to stand in it for five minutes and then two minutes in bow stance on each side. So, yeah. but it, I never donned, I, I knew it, it did bother me, but I had forgotten about it until you just said, the part about the application, I didn't have that application process, but every, my early experience with Chinese uh, martial arts styles, every time I went to a school, it was a similar, you had to sign a, a student handbook or agree to the rules. And one of those was you're not allowed to teach anybody outside of class or even in class if you're not given permission by the instructor. You, you couldn't even be in the school teaching without permission from the instructor. Yeah. And you're right, it's kind of cult-like. I imagine, again, to go back to Jim, Jim Jones, of course, is an extreme example. I'm not saying <laughs> that if you join <laughs> your, your local uh, Troy Lay Foot School, that next thing you're going to wake up in Guyana and somebody's going to be handing you a thing of Kool-Aid. It's not impossible, but yeah. it's unlikely. We had one of those in New England. Really? Yeah, it was a cult school. It was a chain. Uh, uh, Chongmu Do, I think it was originally Um Yong Do. 
the the head instructor, the head guy went to jail for years um, for tax evasion. But I had a student that used to be part of that and he had to give part of his paycheck. Right, tithing. Uh, to the school. Wow. Uh, percentage. <clears throat> and uh, yeah. they isolated you from your family and. Nice work if you can get it. Well, I, I, imagine, I imagine that cult leaders don't like any challenge to their authority. No. So they don't want, if, if I'm Grand uh, Puba Kesting and you're, you, Randy, are one of my students, I don't want you accumulating any power, any legitimacy. And no. because that's, that's inherently a, a threat to my own power. So did you have that when did you ever have that in a martial arts school that you were a part of where the instructor intentionally, whether verbally or in some other way or, or uh, subtly uh, didn't want you to accumulate skill or approach a level that uh, or learn something they didn't know? That's a, maybe a better way to say yeah. it. I think that's pretty that was pretty implicit in my Chinese <clears throat> Kung Fu training. It was, it was the exact opposite when uh, I started training in Kajukembo. So the Kajukembo, mm. and I'm not saying that there's not bad Kajukembo instructors, but the one that I trained with, Philip Jelina in Montreal, really walked, he walked, he talked the talk and he walked the walk of being open-minded and training with other people, incorporating nice. information coming from other places. Oh, Stefan, you're asking me about capoeira. I don't, because capoeira was just kind of breaking out of my consciousness. I don't right. know anything about capoeira, he said. But you know who does? This guy called Bill Owens in the States. I've got his email. Why don't you email him? Nice. And then that started a dialogue. And then later when I came across a capoeira guy in Montreal, which is where I was at the time, Philip was like, oh, cool. Why don't you bring him down for a seminar? Why don't you, you know, use the school? and wow. bring him, like, And Very stuff cool. like yeah. that really was... Uh, like a, it was like a breath of fresh air, as well as the fact that you know there was sparring was a regular thing as opposed to a once every six month thing. And yeah. if you wanted to, if I said, you know, I'd really like trying to spar two on one, two guys against me. Is that okay? Yeah, sure, give it a try. And I found yeah. out firsthand how <laughs> how painful and especially how exhausting it is to kickbox against two people who are roughly your own caliber, or maybe even a little bit better than you. It, it's yeah. really, really hard, especially when they're really trying to punch you. So, so that kind of open-minded approach to martial arts, to training, to acquiring new knowledge was was intoxicating, really. And Which I was willing to... Sure, for the, the experience in BJJ, where it's actually so counter to the Chinese martial arts um, yeah. with relaxed attitude and mostly, openness. mostly you're beginning to see some similar trends in some jujitsu schools and some, in, because some people just like power, right? And yeah. so you're beginning to see this, some of this thou shalt not train at other schools or yeah. thou shalt not do these types of techniques or thou shalt, not speak in class until spoken to. I, I came up in an era when it was super casual. It's first name basis. Didn't matter how many stripes the guy had on his black belt. It wasn't yeah. professor. It wasn't Sifu. It wasn't sensei. It was Marcus. It was yeah. Jim. 
And that is why to this day, I resist, you know, people, people email me all the time, professor, professor Kesting. And I'm like, and then they ask a question. So I answer the question at the end of it. I'm like, and please call me Stefan. For yeah. me anyway, I think that, yes, I, I know some things about jujitsu and that's great. And I can probably help you uh, choke people better. I can probably help you uh, arm lock people better. I can probably help you escape from bad positions better. But that's sort of where my expertise ends. I have expertise in a few other areas in my life as well. Right? I've got a master's in biology. So I'll, I'll say I understand the basics of biology. Mm -hmm. I've been a firefighter for 20 years. I know some things about firefighting. Yep. Uh, I'm a pretty good outdoorsman. I've covered a lot of distance in the Canadian North by myself. Okay, cool. So I, I'll say that those are some areas of expertise. You ask me about investing. I'll say something, but I'll say, and I really don't know Ask me where the real estate market's going to go. I'm like, man, it's crashed in the past. It's going to crash in the future. Will it crash this year? It might. I really don't know. And right. I think this idea of innate humility is a really important one. And conversely, and unfortunately, certainty is seductive. And I think that's when you, when you get to somebody who knows the truth, Right. On everything. Doesn't matter what it is. Doesn't matter whether you're asking uh, about politics. Doesn't matter whether you're asking about epidemiology. Doesn't matter whether you're asking about uh, the, uh, the how to generate yeah. power yeah. in a right cross, yeah. the best punch. Yeah. Yeah. Here is the best punch. Oh, right. okay, cool. I don't, I can now defer any research. Uh, I can defer any, uh, Onus, I can defer any responsibility for me right. figuring out what the best punch is for me. And I mean, any technique that somebody shows you, it's kind of a hypothesis, right? Now, yep. some hypotheses are more certain. I think there's a ton of evidence to suggest that trapping an arm, trapping a leg and bridging and then turning to your side is a pretty good way to get out of the mount. Yep. There's a ton of evidence there. But still, <laughs> is it the best way to get out of the mount? Well, that depends. Danny Nasanto, who I did a lot of training with and was yep. also super refreshing in these same ways, expressed it really well. He's like, what's the best kind of car? Well, it depends, doesn't it? Are you driving on the highway? You know, a Lambo then maybe, or I don't know, a Tesla. Well, what if you've got five kids? Oh, well, that changes it then, you know, then right. you want a van. What if you're driving through the jungle? Well, then you might want a Jeep. You know, what if you're, uh, I don't know, in Antarctica? Well, then you probably want something with the the tank treads and the, and a you know track and and skis, right? It, there is no one best kind of car. There is no one best kind of punch. There is no one best escape from mount. And uh, and all these things have to be customized and and uh, experimented with. And yes, you, it doesn't mean you ignore all the data that's out there. It doesn't mean you go, nee, 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 nee. My, my brand new mount escape is the best. I'm going to ignore right. what all the world champions are doing. I'm going to ignore what I see at the local tournament. I'm going to ignore the fact that it's never worked once in class. You know, I'm still <laughs> going with the, uh, I don't know, the, the ball grab and twist. Yeah. Right? That's, that's all the only escape I need to work. Okay. Okay. Y you do you, I guess. It's 
<laughs> yeah, it's funny because kick. I was just teaching it on Saturday that, in my opinion, is our best kick that we have. Now, when I say that, I I add a caveat. Uh, if you if you train it and get mm -hmm. it right, yeah. But that doesn't and mean you it's said, and you said in everybody. my opinion, right? You said in my opinion, which immediately contextualizes a little bit. I mean, and it, it kind of implies that it's your opinion and that your opinion might change. If you are presented with incontrovertible data, right? There's a better, a better kick, a better kick because it works 70% of the time instead of 65% of the time. By saying opinion, it also implies that you're willing to change your mind if you were presented with better data. Absolutely. And to go back, um, you started to hit on something I wanted to talk about uh, today anyway with you is because you have more of an eclectic background and you grew up with other martial arts, um, you, you hit on something about BJJ going through changes. Mm -hmm. And I wanted to get your opinion and have you speak to that because you uh, officially started not the judo portion, but the where, yes, I, I agree with you. There's links there. Uh, when did you officially start Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu? Hard to say. Probably in the late 80s, very early 90s, okay, when we so started trying to recreate what we were seeing in things like Gracie in action and also yeah. in early shoot boxing and shoot wrestling in Japan. Like, this, okay, this stuff's legit, and we don't have any sources of instruction here, but we have a training method, and that's called rolling around on the ground, trying to yeah. get the other guy to give up. And we, ha we, we vaguely know from watching Gracie in action that it's better to be on top and that if we can get to the mount, we should go to the mount. And from watching yep. Gracie in action too, if we have to be on the bottom, then we should try and wrap our legs around the guy. And then right. we've got a couple of submissions because we'd done some judo, we'd done some Japanese jiu-jitsu, we had, you know, there are submissions and finishes inherent in Kajukembo. And once again, Philip Jelena, all props to him. He'd done some wrestling, I'd done some judo, and we basically, after regular Kajukemba class, we'd spend an hour trying to rip each other's uh, each other's hair out. I had <laughs> big ass hair. You had hair, <laughs> and we'd be doing like eye gouges with control, finger twists with less control, and full power hair pulls because we were trying to figure it out. But the training right. method was training against resistance. And yes, if we had had some well-developed curriculum and a pedagogy to guide yeah. us, we would have gotten better faster, but we still got better. That, that putting in that time in the sport or time in the training method, which is rolling around on the ground, trying to tear each other's heads off, still developed a lot of positive information. It really identified holes like, oh my God, I really need a way to get out of the headlock because I keep on yeah. getting put in the headlock. You know, and then trying to like go through my judo books, trying to figure out if there was a headlock escape. You know, it's funny that, um, and this is off topic for a second, but you bring up a really good point because there are times um, where you can have the best curriculum. You can have the best, like, you okay, here we have these series of principles. And if you follow these, you'll be able to diagnose your, your fighting skills. You'll be able to fix things. So let's start from the ground up with these, these principles and these drills, and you're going to be great. But uh, at the end of the day, <clears throat> if 
there has to be a certain amount of experience the person has with getting punched, getting kicked, getting choked out on the ground, getting just getting smashed where they're stuck in the mountain. They can't get out before they can appreciate that uh, you have a skill, you have a drill, you have a principle or a technique to make it easier. It's almost like you have to have that pain in order to appreciate the solution. <laughs> yeah. Well, there's that old saying that when the student is ready, yeah. the teacher will appear. Maybe a more nuanced version of that is when the student finally realizes that he has a problem with X, Y, Z, there will be a, he will finally value the solution that the teacher is offering on that yeah. topic. It's not as succinct, <laughs> but perhaps it, it is more, uh, more accurate, more correct. Yeah. So your, your background goes back to the origins of uh, really coming to North America. So you've seen, I'm sure, a lot of changes over the years. Do you think that, do you, first of all, do you, what changes have you seen? And is there any sure. correlation that you've seen between, um, say, martial arts that were around in the 70s that were fairly new and upcoming at the time and the changes they went through? Like with stand up, we saw the the full contact fighting that that turned into eventually point sparring and and took the teeth out of the art yeah. altogether. Do you see uh, any yeah. any parallels there with BJJ? What changes have you noticed? Of course, there have been a ton of technical changes and a ton of rule changes as well. When I started, you weren't allowed to heel hook but pretty much every other leg lock was game. You could neck crank. Uh, there were the use of stripes between belts was basically unheard of. The, uh, the jiu-jitsu community hadn't figured out to, uh, to import that idea from Taekwondo yet. Okay. The, uh, the mentality was much more closely linked to MMA because you were pretty sure that you were going to be fighting in the UFC next month. <laughs> and if you weren't, then there was probably some dude at the club that you were training with who was definitely fighting MMA, right? So quite a few of the guys. by proxy, right? Yeah. And training partner. And, you know, so I, I did, I ended up sparring over the years with and being a training partner for quite a few guys who fought in the UFC or fought in pride. And so that there was more of a close connection to MMA. But I'm aware that there's a tendency for in any sport, in any activity, for people to hearken, you know, the good old, to call the good old days, back in the day when men right. were men. And uh, it just, that day just happens to be when the person themselves was at their physical prime, right? Yeah. Back right. when I was 25, that's really when we had the real jiu-jitsu. What we have now is, a bunch of guard pulling this and that. Blah, blah, blah. Well, it's true, right? At the rules right now, they do favor uh, pulling guard. Yeah. And everybody realizes this isn't the world's most combative strategy. That being said, the level of conditioning is so much higher. The level of technique is so much mm -hmm. higher. Uh, the... The training methodology is higher. The approach to it like a professional sport is higher. But I don't think if you've got some purple belt who wins tournament after tournament based on 
pulling guard going upside down and using reverse inside out uh, backwards De La Hiva guard. There is no reverse upside down, inside out De La Hiva guard, but, but there will be next week. Somebody will invent that. And, but that's his whole or her whole competition strategy. If they got in a fight, their only mistakes might be strategic, like going to the ground when they should be running. Yeah. Staying and fighting somebody when they should be looking for a weapon, not looking for weapons, not worried about other attackers. But if it stays one-on-one, -on -one, they're going to do just fine. Or rather, oh, yeah. the more precise okay. version is going to be they've got a 99% chance of coming out of that encounter just fine as long as they don't get blindsided by a sucker punch. That Definitely. whole problem about multiple attackers and just maintaining awareness of the possibility of weapons and an awareness of where the weapons are that you can use, that was never really part of BJJ. So yeah. you can't, I, I think there are people trying to inject that into jiu-jitsu, and that's great. Burton Richardson's done a ton of work on that. I've tried to do a little bit of work about that on my various YouTube channels. But that's an unfair criticism, or it's unfair to say, back in the day, we were always worried about, you know, knives, because we weren't. Right. Yeah. So I don't <clears throat> actually think the art, for the most part, has gotten diluted. What I have seen more of, that if, if you want me to complain about the state of jiu-jitsu now, is more of the McDojoification, right? Yeah. You have attended 85 classes, and that means it's now time for your blue belt. You've right. attended 92 classes. Now it is time for one stripe on your blue belt. I mean, there were lots of people. Uh, mm -hmm. My first jiu-jitsu instructor, it took him, he was very, very good, Shemek Uh He got to blue belt, and then I think he stayed blue belt, I want to say, for 15 or 18 years. Eric Paulson was a blue belt, I want to say, for 15 or 20 years. Like Wow. And wow. some of that was... was uh, a lot of that was political and he was training with other people and he didn't have a kind of a home gym. Yeah. So, yeah. But this idea of this inevitable progression and why don't you sign up for our black belt program? Really it's, it's, there has, been, there have been some schools that have taken more of a McDojo approach yeah. to maintaining uh, their student base. I suppose that was inevitable. That is a, a price of success. That's a price of penetration. Yeah. I, You're I, always I going to have, that short that 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 uh what's the word corrupt if you will yeah. corrupt I, things i think it's inevitable and then yeah. you hear stories about back in the day of certain members of the gracie family shall we say making it much much easier to obtain a black belt if you had sufficient financial resources to essentially buy uh, i'm not saying it was common and i'm not no. mentioning names but I've definitely heard Brazilians accuse yeah. certain members. So it, it's been around forever. I've, yeah, and, I've heard those stories too. Yeah, I, yeah. I know of a few examples. Again, won't mention names, yeah. but yeah. That's, yeah, so it, this, it's, it's almost inevitable, right? You mix money and sport and status and you know trying to make connections. I mean, uh, if I was the head of... Uh, uh, I'm trying to think of a good example. If I was running a country and somebody, <laughs> and somebody offered me an honorary black belt, I would take it. And the guy offering me that honorary black belt would be doing it for a reason. Right. Right. They're trying to uh, curry favor. So right. these things are, I'm sure they've been going on since the beginning of time.
yeah. we will give great, you know, great leader of our tribe. Let us award you the, the award of the carved mammoth tusk for being the best hunter of all time ever. Uh, by the way, can I uh, marry your daughter? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> It's and it's funny because it's in the education system where they give honorary doctorates and um, there's no there are no qualifications for that, but the person got it for some other achievement or some other reason, maybe a large donation to that university. <laughs> yeah. Um, do you think that? Well, I've never done it. What's that? You've never done? No, me, no. I, I, I've not been successfully bribed yet, but if people just want to start sending me large amounts of Bitcoin uh, to uh, to my... Uh, that could go either way. I that could go up or it could crash. And, to undergo and the temptation, unfortunately, your Bitcoin donation. So have okay. you... So even though you haven't seen uh, a dilution, because the, obviously the intensity hasn't subsided because we still have... Uh, large portion of the population jujitsu facing off either competing themselves or in schools that people compete. Um, and that culture is still there. It's still strong. But have you, what about the sportification aspect for lack of a better word um, where more and more rules you, you lightly hit on that more and more rules have come into place that favor one thing over another. Do you see that, like in 20 years that jujitsu is going to look more like wrestling or uh, more like just change. It's impossible to say. It's impossible to say. I mean, you, you take a look at other sports that made changes, right? Judo was a great one. Yeah. Judo has evolved yeah. greatly over time as at first they didn't need to have that many rules about gripping. Then in came the Russians with their flying arm bars their unorthodox grips, like grabbing the belt over the shoulder and 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 double leg tackles, actually. And then wrestlers yeah. start going into yeah. judo. Like, this is great. I just need to, these guys all come in super upright. If I learn some right. basic grip right. fighting, I will basic grip fight, then I'll level change and double leg them. And when I did judo, I, I went through a couple phases of training judo. The second time I came back to judo, I competed. And I remember coming out onto the mat against this like six foot eight, 275 pound man monster. Wow. And I was like, I'm not going to harai gauche this guy. I'm not going <laughs> to. I'm going to. There's only two things I'm going to do here. I'm going to. They're both basically out of the jujitsu playbook because I was doing jujitsu. Number one, I'm going to. Uh, if all, all else goes to hell and we actually tie up, I'm going to try to sacrifice Throm because I'm not yeah. going to let him throw me. And he's probably a big guy like that. He's probably got an entire throwing strategy based around essentially grabbing an arm, wrapping himself around it in a Makakomi throw, and then throwing himself on top of me to like break some ribs when yeah. we hit the mat. So that's not going to happen. I'm just going to pull guard or try a sacrifice throw because I was right. not surprisingly quite good at the sacrifice throws because it's a lot like guard work. And the other one, which ended up working, was come out. I, I we squared up and I like retreated a little bit and I put a little bit of fear on my face and he stepped forward and I retreated a little bit and he goes, ah, I've got this guy now. And I half stepped back and then level changed and tackled him and did a double leg tackle, ended up winning by arm bar. Uh, but that would now get me immediately disqualified. Yeah. So it's yeah. so an attempt to preserve the purity of the art, which it, which in the Japanese sense means like, 
I grab your lapel and we will stand there and then I will throw you with a beautiful classic judo throw. Yeah. They banned a whole bunch of stuff. That being said, judo newaza tournaments, which are basically jiu-jitsu tournaments, are becoming right. more popular. Ah. Cool. Uh, some of the rules that I've bitched about the longest in jiu-jitsu, re- you know, no leg reaping, le- for your listeners who don't know. Yeah. If I'm, if you're leg locking me, somehow your legs have to con- wrap around my leg. Mm-hmm. The odds of you just grabbing my ankle and applying a leg lock without controlling my leg, oh. it might work one in a thousand times. It works in pro wrestling sometimes. But the reality is it's a very, 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 very low percentage. So you got to control my leg somehow with your legs. Mm-hmm. And if you do that the wrong way, you get disqualified and I yep. win. I was disqualified from that. For leg for reaping? Yeah. Yep. Yep. I didn't even know that I, they had changed the rules in the IBJJF that yeah. – now, um, not that I, they're not complaining that they changed the rule. The uh, the first tournament that they had after changing it, they uh, made the shift to no warnings, automatic DQ, mm-hmm. and I didn't. I was a blue belt. I didn't even know that I was that my foot was in the wrong position, <clears throat> and uh, I had the ankle lock. And the ju- the ref came over and he's like stand up, stand up, stand up. And I thought that we were out of bounds or something. I, I, and I get back in line, like on the line, ready to go again. And he's like, no, 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 you're, you're done. You're, you're disqualified. I'm like, for what, what did I do? <laughs> and, uh, yeah, I had my leg wrapped over the other guy's leg. Yep. Yeah. The wrong way. Cause if you go the other way, you're, it's perfectly fine. Yeah. Right. So, Apparently, the IBJJF is getting rid of the leg reaping rule for brown belt and black belt. So that's okay. So that will hugely change, especially the no gi competition. And supposedly, they're allowing heel hooks in blue belt, uh, sorry, brown belt and black belt, which will okay. again hugely change the rules or hugely change the sport. So the stuff that I've been bitching about for a long time is about to be changed. So that's, it's that's really good. Yeah, I, I actually would be happy with allowing reaping, yep. but no heel hooks. Uh, I think the, the heel hooks are undeniably effective, and they're undeniable, and I love them. Yeah, and I love training them with sane people. Yeah. Right. If, if if I've got my training partners, and I know that if I get the heel hook, they're not gonna. If I get the heel hook on them, they're not gonna spin the wrong way, and and tear yeah. their own leg apart. And if they heel hook me, they're not just going to cr- get excited and crank it. I yeah. think once you get into competition, it'll be really interesting to see what happens to the injury statistics next year uh, yeah. once, once this rule comes online. So where's it going? I don't know. Uh, I, I'm guessing that what drove the evolution of that was the relative success and popularity of the Nogi grappling circuit now. Things yeah. you know, like Polaris. Things like EBI, the other competitive things like ADCC, and uh, so they're they're responding to each other and they're trying to maintain I don't know relevance and market share. Why do you um, why do you think that it took so long for some of those changes? Because it or a better question I, would be why why didn't they add in this? level qualification earlier, especially like you did a video years ago, I remember on the scissor clip, well, well, 
uh, I, I don't know the Japanese term for it. I call it the scissor clip where you cut the legs out um, from the side, from the flank position, and you sweep the guy to the ground or girl. And that's illegal and banned in, in BJJ. And it was never even a problem in BJJ. They didn't have the injuries, but they just copied judo. But why is it just ban the move instead of allow it at brown belt, allow it at black belt, where somebody's got more control to apply it? I don't know. I, I actually don't have a problem with a banning of Kani Basami, uh, which is the name of that throw in judo or the flying scissors. I, it's just, I think probably based on my personal experience, I mean, I've destroyed someone's ankle doing it. Okay. Uh, now I wasn't, you know, black belt, but black belts would just do it harder and faster and maybe even find a way to accidentally land on the guy's ankle and break it. Oops, I won. Uh, a training partner of mine had to have uh, ACL, is it ACL? Anyhow, knee surgery to rebuild his knee after that throw went poorly. And there was one other incident in that same club where that throw resulted in a pretty serious injury. And we didn't do that much stand-up in that club. Now, yeah. I, it's, it's sad because it's such an effective throw, but I think statistically it's, it is more dangerous. Um, mm -hmm. In terms of why did it take so long to undo the reaping, I'm going to argue they brought the reaping in much like the Japanese because they had this vision of what the martial art was supposed to look like. The Japanese uh, governing body really had this show is about these big, beautiful throw, you know, Uchimata, Uchimata Tayotoshi, Tayotoshi Osorogari. And the way people were beginning to game the rules or game the system and bring in influences from other martial arts, moved it away from what they thought beautiful. Why did they introduce reaping, the anti-reaping rules in uh, Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu? Probably because it moved jiu-jitsu away from what they thought beautiful jiu-jitsu should look yeah. like. The, the, it, it makes that beautiful open guard work where you're you know, spinning upside down, where you're uh, opening your legs and doing beautiful flower sweeps or, or whatever. It makes it hard to do when somebody's jumping on your leg and trying to leg lock you. Yeah. So that's why they brought it in. Why they got rid of it, I'm guessing, is to preserve market share against the yeah. organizations that are allowing leg locks and to keep the interest of the nogi crowd it's almost like if you'd asked me about the evolution of jiu-jitsu a couple of months ago i would have said we may see a split into nogi and gi where there really isn't much cross training anymore yeah there have been that's, that's certainly been a trend whether this one rule change undoes all that is entirely possible they, I so mean, they, they may reunite jiu-jitsu they're pretty responsive because I know uh, that same tournament that I got disqualified, um, another guy on my team, a black belt, got disqualified for the same thing. Uh, and they had, I think, over 40 DQs that day out of 700 mm. competitors from that rule. You think, they could have had a, a, you think they could have had a really big clarification on day one. Okay, guys, here's what's going to get you DQ'd. Let's give you an example. Let's give right. you another example. And then I'm sure some people were gaming the system because early in the process, if you had me in an ankle lock, with just a standard ankle lock position, and I wanted to win the match, 
I've, I've saw people do it. They'd yep, surreptitiously take your foot, jam it across into the bad position. Then having moved your foot into the illegal position, I would then scream in pain, clutch my knee, roll around on the mat, watch you get disqualified. I win. And then I go running around the mat with my arms up, hugging my teammates, lifting my coach up. Yeah. It's like a soccer player after the yellow, the yellow sponge comes out. Yeah. And, you know, they, they've been writhing around on the ground as if they've been shot. Their yes. opponent gets a yellow card. They get the yellow sponge. And all of a sudden, they're better. Like, really? Come on. Come on. <laughs> this, this, I'm not sure what rules we need to have the perfect sport. But I do know we need to get rid of this bullshit behavior. Yeah. Yeah. For, for I, I agree. I absolutely agree. That, that um, I cannot be entirely sure. I cannot say definitively one way or another that the guy I was going against didn't move my foot. I, I honestly didn't remember putting it there, but Hey, maybe I did in the heat of the moment. Adrenaline was going, uh, speed to going fast. Uh, so I I'll take responsibility for it, but I, there's still an unknown there. I didn't do this, but I saw this done in a judo uh, competition a judo meet. Uh, where one guy was on basically on the other guy's back and he's trying to choke him out and the gi is pulled up over both people's heads and it's just a it, it's hard to tell yeah you know, where one body is and the guy on top who's doing the choking sneaks his hand out underneath the guy's gi and taps twice and the ref's like stop mate stand up awards the winner to the guy who uh, basically tapped on behalf of his opponent <laughs> It's a terrible strategy, but it's pretty funny. <laughs> I would have been choked beyond choked. Oh, sadly, sadly, if you did punch the guy in the throat, uh, as the loser, as the uh, illegitimate loser, you would be banned from all future judo competitions in perpetuity. Yeah. They don't. Re they really don't. The amount of shenanigans that go on at a uh, jiu-jitsu competition with one coach sucker punching or sucker elbowing the other coach and people running around and getting in like these uh, dominance dis displays yeah. and posturing. That's really not tolerated in judo. And that's actually something that I, I hope jiu-jitsu takes from judo. I, yeah, I agree. I agree. That's that's not necessary behavior. It's yeah. funny, the, the same problems that you mentioned in judo with um, like the emphasis going on, uh, maybe you didn't classify it as a problem. Um, so I don't want to put words in your mouth, but the emphasis on the the really spectacular throw, mm -hmm. the same exact thing has been happening in uh, Shuai Zhao okay. and the Chinese uh, throwing art that's very similar. Yeah, yeah. It's all the emphasis. Like um, I have a, one of my black belts that's been more interested in Shuai Zhao and he's encouraged him to go pursue that. And so he started training in that specifically and competing. He came back and said that there was a lot of uh, they, they're not even teaching a lot of the places that he was going. They're not even teaching the full breadth of the throws. It's more, okay, let's focus on the ones that get mm. the biggest, ah, from the crowd. Yeah. Uh, but they're harder throws to do too. And much more dangerous. Yes. If, 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 if I had the choice of you, I don't know, uh, foot sweeping me mm -hmm. or you picking me up in a fireman's carry position and then dumping me on my head. Yeah, I know which one I would volunteer to demo. Yeah, like, yeah. I, I'll it's go for the foot sweep, please. And I think <laughs> the, uh, I mean, it's it's. I, I I'm glad I don't have to be in charge of the rules 
because I understand yeah. wanting to make something more telegenic, more photogenic, more exciting for spectators. But at the same time, it, it and the same things that make football, like I, I'm not a big team sports guy, but yeah, me either. I don't really watch football. I don't really watch hockey, but man, when there's a really good body check in hockey or just a spectacular tackle in football, yeah. I'll watch that on the highlight clip and I'll like, Oh, you know, I'll, I'll do the whole reaction. But that is actually coming at the cost of someone's brain cells, right? I, yep. yep. Or potentially uh, breaking their neck if you bring uh, them up in a hip toss and drop them on their head. Or even just uh, like shoulder surgery to, to rebuild their shoulder that will never be the same. So yep. yeah, it, it's a trade-off. You know, we are, in a sense, it is kind of like gladiatorial combat for the entertainment of the masses. So I, I have one more question for you, uh, if you don't mind entertaining this. It's a uh, chicken or the egg question, actually. <laughs> uh, what came first, but not necessarily what came first. As a, as an instructor yourself, as a longtime practitioner, uh, for beginners, and if you want to change that uh, for even somebody that maybe has experience but needs to fix their game, you would you – what would you – say should come first in emphasis, uh, submissions, training submissions or escapes. The advantage of going with submissions first is it's very sexy and it's more likely to hook the potential student. It's mm -hmm. more likely to make them feel empowered. Yes. And it's more likely for them to go, this is bloody cool. I can choke somebody out who's <laughs> 50 pounds uh, heavier than me. So I actually think submissions, even though when somebody starts jujitsu, that's not what they need. Right. That is really, really not what they need. It is, you know, what they need is escapes because they're going to spend almost all their time on the bottom. Yeah. But to give them an early win is important. Now, if they already come into the art and they already have a background, they already understand stuff, and they're already uh, convinced of the utility of grappling and the necessity of grappling, then I might start with escapes first. But if it's if it's just trying to hook somebody and give them an early win, I would actually say submissions, and I would probably say either the armbar or the rear naked choke. Th those are probably the, the first two I would start with. And so I've got fairly good teaching progressions to teach those to beginners, skipping a bunch of the steps that we would do or that I would right. do going against somebody who's actually pretty good, right? It, it, you're, you're simplifying it to give them an early win. It's like uh, if I was teaching, uh, I, I don't know, I, if I was giving dating advice, right? What everybody wants is the pickup line. What the, that's what that, that's the dessert. What they really need to know is like, here's how to make your life not a total disaster so that some yeah. woman would actually want to spend time with you. But that's not a sexy title. You know, if I, if I have two books. I'm about to be a dirtbag before you ask her out. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> a broke, penniless dirtbag uh, right. who's playing video games all day long. Cause yeah. You know. So if I wrote two books and one was like 10, <laughs> pick up lines that will get them to drop everything and uh, have sex with you right away. 
I said I'd have to work on that title, but that say that that's the title, or some variation of that versus how to uh, make your life have meaning and how to not be a total loser, how to get out of your parents' basement and become somebody that some quality woman would actually want to date. Right. We we both know that the first title would is going to sell the other one a hundred to one. So. So maybe the ethical thing, you know, I'm not in the dating advice space, would be to write, the, you know, to use the the body of the second book, but put the title of the yeah. first book on it. You know, 10 right. magic pickup lines that work every time, right. even if she's lesbian, especially if she's lesbian. There, three, that, three submissions that will win every time, and then the book inside the book is all the escapes. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. that would that'd be funny. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Bait and, and switch. And tell them it's, what they want. Give them what they need. It's, uh, I mean, I, you have a, and it, the, you, you took the marketing, uh, the marketing route to answering the question, which is, uh, it's wise. It makes a lot of sense. And it's, um, but you also uh, highlighted a point about skipping steps because one of the things I've noticed <clears throat> over the years teaching jujitsu one of the the worst arm bars to start somebody out with is the the close guard arm bar from close guard like you will never hit that for probably years it's like that's why is this going to be the first arm bar that yeah. i teach you i actually stopped myself one day cuz i was just teaching a, a basic class and i'm like why am i teaching this this is ridiculous this is not even you're never going to get this. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and statistically, guard sweeps are much more likely to happen than guard submissions. Not impossible for a submission from the guard. And if a submission from the guard happens, at least half the time, it's because you threaten the guard sweep first. Yeah. But but nobody doing a boxer size class wants to spend the first six months working on footwork and their jab. They yeah. want the big right hand and they pop, pop, pop. Right. So it, it's all, it's a thing that all teachers have to navigate, I think, is giving them the, the sexy, shiny object versus yeah. giving them the meat and potatoes. And I think it's what you said earlier, uh, which is that you some lessons you almost have to allow the person to discover the need for themselves. Okay, yeah. now you know, let's say the armbar from the guard, right? Here, here's the armbar from the guard, little student. Go forth and train. <laughs> And like, oh, okay, now we're getting crushed by somebody who's much lighter than me. And like a now they now they understand why you need to work on your guard retention. Now they right. understand why they need to work on their pin escapes. But until that lesson is is taught, and I'm not saying beat the crap out of beginners, but some people honestly they do learn better after they've had the crap yeah. kicked out of them. One of the in my generation, in my era, it's kind of a blue belt. So we'll say uh, um, mid-90s. Mm -hmm. We had a world-class wrestler walk into the gym. And it was also a world-class rugby player. Tough, tough individual. Super yeah. conditioned. And he rolled with the instructor. And the instructor uh, triangle choked him. And then... Uh, I think he triangle choked him a couple of times. So basically, and, and he was a tough guy, so he suffered for a long time in the triangle choke before he tapped. Yeah. Then he 
actually signed up, became really good at jujitsu, trained for a long time. If he had not been triangle choked reasonably hard the yep. first couple of times, he would have ended just like, okay, you know, here's here's hypothetically the, the technique you're supposed to do. Um, he would have never signed up. Now, the counter narrative to this, uh, Fabio Gergel, who I've worked with on instructionals and had on my podcast, argues that uh, if you if you get beginners to spar, you will drive w way more of them off than you will retain. Interesting. So, so thus, you shouldn't make them spar initially. Uh, and the best way to, like, even if your focus is on world champions, how do you get world champions? Well, it's like a pyramid. You've got a whole ton of beginners, yeah. and then you've got a giant number of blue belts. Very, very school, few schools are, you know, we, we're just world champions here. Well, no, you can't, you can't run a school that way. I mean, yeah. that's I've seen that with uh, a few years ago. The I watched a video of a, a guy consulting, I think, a room of 15 young uh, CrossFit box owners. <clears throat> and uh, he was ex he was explaining to them and showing charts on the whiteboard, drawing charts on the whiteboard that you cannot build your box around the the CrossFit right. Games competitor. You have to build it. You sure you allow them to come into your school, but you can't allow them to walk over to somebody and push them out of the way and said, "That's get out of my way. I'm competing. That's my barbell." Uh, because then you're not going to have any beginners. You're not going to have any early students. Yeah. I agree with him on that. Yeah. What's that? Who's going to pay the rent then? Yeah. And Unless that CrossFit competitor is giving you half of his pay, half of his uh, sponsorship money, which he's probably not. I mean, I, I, I like eating crow. I mean, I'm guilty of it early on when I first started my school. Uh, I pushed a lot of people away because I had been competing for four years and mm -hmm. I, had this mentality. I was training six, seven days a week. And if you didn't, if you didn't keep pace, then what are yeah. you doing? What are you wasting my time? And I pushed a lot of people away, not being accepting of the fact that, Hey, they're going to, they're going to one day train like you, but you got to give them the ability to come in once or twice a week, if that's yeah. what they want. And people are at different life stage. I, I suppose your argument would have been, well, if they're at the life stage where they can only train twice a week and sometimes even only once a week, they can go train somewhere else. Yeah. But but the reality is that, you know, life happens and people can yep. sometimes train more and sometimes train less. And ultimately, what allows you, it, it is like a pyramid, right? Like for each thousand beginners, you've got, I don't know what the numbers are. You've got 100 blue belts. You've got 50 purple belts. You've got 20 brown belts. You've got 10 black belts. You want more black belts? Have more beginners. Oh, the drop-off. I mean, you know that the drop-off after blue belt is like yeah. this. And, but then when you get to brown belt, it's very little drop-off because people are almost there Yeah. now, not to have you put words in uh, or speak for him, but Fabio, cause I know this the years ago, the Gracie Academy did the same thing in LA where they don't have people roll until they're, yeah. uh, I, I, I don't, I don't remember. It was, um, they had like to be there, yeah. Oh, it's a, it's just a month. So oh, okay, I I don't know what it is currently. I don't. Know. Um, I shouldn't. Yeah, well, oh. let's not let's not talk about it because neither of us have a definitive answer. But what I'm biased, what I'm I'm biased is how because because I didn't come up that way. Yeah, I didn't come up that way. So of course, I think that the way that I was brought up was the right way. Right. I'm admitting to that bias. 
I think that if you're keeping the instruction fairly one-on-one, -on -one, the onboarding process fairly one-on-one, -on -one, there is a way that you can get uh, movement against resistance in. Now, it might not be full-on sparring. It might just be hold them out. It might be right. get up from the guard. It might be don't let this person pass your open guard. And you're not crushing them. But there's still a way to get new people to feel the resistance and to work against resistance. Yeah. So I, I, I'm not going to uh, go out there and say that these people are doing it wrong. It's not how I was raised. It's not how I came up. It really was. Yeah. You were thrown to the wolves. And if you survived, then you were one of the few, the, you know, we few, we happy, happy few. But uh, I think the essence of the art is still training something against resistance. And if there are ways to, to do that without going to full on like hyena mode, like, oh, it's a white belt. I'm going to do every wrist lock I know as hard as I can. And I don't care if he doesn't come back because I'm not paying the bills. I'm just a senior right. student. Um, so, yeah, it does take a lot of top down control and a culture of that walks the line of yeah. not allowing your new people to get crushed but at the same time allowing them to have an experience that you know and, and allowing them to have an experience that's both real and empowering and that's tough and if, sometimes if that uh, world-class wrestler walks in through the door really the only answer is to triangle choke them super hard in real yeah. sparring and if the the housewife who walks through the door which is an incredibly intimidating thing right yep. i've been doing martial arts for 40 years i'm I'm uh, six foot one, I'm 215 pounds. Uh, I, and I know that their most clubs are all right. Yeah. It's still a little bit intimidating for me, just a little bit to walk through the door of a new place. Are they insane here? Yeah. You know, are, yeah. Uh, is there somebody that I've really offended here? Which is getting more and more likely, actually. Uh, <laughs> the. So if that's how I feel, then just imagine, then I got to take a look at this and go, okay, I got to project myself into the, uh, into the body or the mind of a 45-year-old accountant yeah. who would really like to do some jiu-jitsu or do some martial arts, but is really intimidated. So yeah. the, the, somehow the, the culture of the club needs to accommodate both the hardcore rugby player, the hardcore wrestler, the guy who would only be convinced by getting smashed, and then right. going, this is awesome! I totally got smashed! And that accountant. So if, you're, if your system can accommodate both types of people, then I don't have a problem with, with either way of doing it. Yeah. I, I, I went to Marcelo Garcia's school in New York um, a few years ago. Holly and I went and visited, and uh, we did a class but we, we wanted to make the both the beginner and the uh, advanced class, but the train was late, so we could only make the advanced. But I noticed on their descriptors, like the basic class, the beginner class, only did positional sparring. Mm -hmm. No no full rolling. If you wanted full rolling, you'd yeah. go to the advanced class. But in, when we were in the advanced class and on Saturdays there, uh, I know you've been to a school. I don't know if you were there on a Saturday, but there's huge uh, amount of visitors that come in. Um, but we, 
we had a really good experience there. Everybody was low key welcoming. They didn't roll like, uh, it was, I don't want to say it was flow rolling, but it was more relaxed. Yeah. The it wasn't malicious and super, it all comes from the top down. Like that culture comes from the top down. And if ultimately the, and it doesn't just apply to jiu-jitsu, it applies to every school. If the instructor is a controlling bully, then the senior students are going to end up being controlling bullies, recreating yeah. what was done to them with the, with the intermediate students who are then recreating what was done to them with the junior students. It's, I mean, it's just like a pathological family where history sure. repeats itself generation after generation. Uh, you know, my dad was an alcoholic and beat me up. So then I started drinking to quench my own pain. And I'm beating up my kids and my kids are going to beat up their kids. And this just goes right. on. Yeah, the chain. It, yeah, it, it's so. And I, my alcoholic example there, that's over the course of 20 to 30 years between generations. The generations are much close, more closely spaced in a martial arts school. Yeah. And so it's a, you know, people learn very, very quickly what acceptable behavior is and what unacceptable behavior is and um, and and live that. So they, I think the role of a martial arts instructor is incredibly important to maintain that environment that's, you know, both challenging, reasonably safe, and productive. Yeah, I mean, you have a lot of good points there about especially the different walks of life that come through the door and uh, the that again going back to what we hit on early on with the first impression uh, matters and especially I, it's hard to remember what it was like and mm -hmm. it is intimidating even I'm with you if I go into some school I don't know what they're like I don't know what they're gonna they're gonna try to do I had I had some really bad experiences trying to get into Brazilian jiu-jitsu in the first place so I already have a, a reference point of what not mm -hmm. to want to get into. Um, but it's, uh, it's gotta be really, really intimidating for, um, people that have never done this. And it's, it's hard to remember that. Yeah. But hundred well, percent. That was a, that was a fun talk. We, we covered a lot of stuff that I didn't plan on and some good stuff. I like that. Um, I want to thank sorry for dragging us into the weeds, but, uh, oh. but I enjoyed it. And that's the most important thing. No, I'm glad you. Uh, I'm glad you stopped by, and we got to have this conversation. It's been uh, too long since our last chat. Yeah. Well, hopefully one day the border will be open, and we can actually uh, visit yes. in person. That'd be nice. That'd be awesome. Definitely. Thank you very much, Stefan. I appreciate it. Take care.